Thank you and good morning. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It's, it just really gladdens my heart to be back with you all again. Um, thank you for the opportunity to open God's Word uh, together for us today. I was looking back at my calendar um, at when it was last that we were here, and it's almost 12 months to the day um, since we were last with you. And uh, it's been a, a busy 12 months, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, a lot's happened for our family. Uh, I've changed job, I think it's three times now. Um, we sold our house in Canberra and we moved back up to Queensland a couple of months ago now. Uh, but the most significant thing that's happened for us is the birth of our son, Jonathan. Um, so with his arrival, a lot has changed, obviously. Um, and one of the things that we've started doing is going through the Bible together, the three of us as a family, from start to finish. Uh, so our practices every evening will Uh, sit down together, we'll read a small portion and we'll talk about what it means together, spend some time in worship and and prayer. And really my goal as Jonathan's dad is to teach him the Bible, to teach him the story of the Bible, so that one day he can open it and understand and read it for himself. And at the moment we're, we're working our way through the Old Testament and we're in the book of 1 Samuel. And, um, as we've been going through, it's, it's reminded me, uh, of something that I know, which is that it's not always easy to understand or explain the Old Testament. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in in that feeling. Uh, There are portions of the Old Testament that many of us are familiar with and are comfortable explaining, but then there are also portions that are a bit more difficult to understand and explain. And even amongst the more familiar parts, oftentimes we can have the wrong idea about what those stories mean. And we miss the fact that all of the stories in the Old Testament fit together to tell one big story. You see, the Bible is one big story. It's a long and complicated story about events that take place over thousands of years. But even so, it is one story. And like most good stories, the most important and exciting parts come towards the end. In this case, when Jesus is born, lives, dies, is resurrected and ascends to heaven to announce that he's coming soon. But to understand why he comes and what he is doing when he dies and rises, we need to understand the story that went before. Sadly, I'm convinced that in our churches today, many Christians don't really understand this. We aren't comfortable handling the Old Testament. Sure, we know the story of Moses in Egypt. We are comfortable understanding the significance of Noah and the flood. But what of Jael, who kills Sisera with a tent peg? What about the conquest of Abraham with 600 men? Why is that random detail inserted in there? Why is that so important? What about all those forgotten kings and judges who pop up again and again and again and end up leading Israel, God's people, for much more time than the famous ones like David and Solomon? What about that tiny book of Ruth that appears sandwiched between the tomes of the books of Judges and the books of Samuel? How do these all fit as part of that story? What do they mean? There's a twofold danger, I think, for us as Christians if we don't understand the Old Testament. The first is if that we're not comfortable wielding it, then it will be used as a weapon against us. 
How many times have we heard non-Christians quote verses from the Old Testament as supposed proof of how barbaric our beliefs are? How stupid they are? Unless we're comfortable understanding what those verses mean and how to explain them, they're going to be used against us and we miss an opportunity to point out our enemies of God to the true God to whom those verses point. The second thing I think that we miss out um, in, in terms of if we don't understand the Old Testament is we won't understand the New Testament, Jesus, to whom it points. We need to recover a truly biblical understanding of the Old Testament and its relationship to the New there's a guy called Peter J. Leihart. He's, a, he's an American theologian. He has an excellent book, which I'll talk about at the end, which is called A House for My Name. And in it, he writes this. He says, Recovering the Old Testament as a text in which Christians live and move and have their being is one of the most important tasks before the church. Reading the Reformers is good and right. Christian political activism has its place. Even at their best, however, they can only bruise the heel of a world that has abandoned God. But the Bible, the Bible is the sword that divides joints from marrow. It is the weapon to crush the head. So what I'd like to do this morning, if you'll indulge me, is to help us understand how to wield this sword. Now, I was going to do an overview of the whole Old Testament, and it got rather long, and then I was going to do just two books and that still was pretty long so I'm going to zoom in on just one of the books of the Old Testament as a bit of a sample. I'm going to do a flyover of the book of Ruth. I want to understand or help us to understand how it fits in the context of the Old Testament, how you can read it and what it contributes to the overarching narrative of God's big story. And I'm hoping we can do a few more of these in the future, whether we look at a particular book or a theme that runs through the Old Testament remains to be seen. But for this morning, please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Ruth. As I said before, it's sandwiched, it's four chapters long, in between the books of Judges and Samuel. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this story. Uh, the, the book of Ruth is divided into four chapters and it tells a story about three main characters who are Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. But I want us to kind of do a bit of a fly through the verses here and, and notice some of the detail that is important to understanding this book. So chapter one, if you have a look there at verse one, in chapter one, the book of Ruth opens with these words. Now it happened in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land. The story that's about to unfold is going to occur during the time of the Judges, which is around 1000 BC. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, flip back a page uh, to the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges and notice how it ends. It ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the spiritual context for the book of Ruth. It's a dark time. It's a time in Israel's history when they did not worship God. Instead, every man, every woman did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's no surprise then when we flip over a page to the beginning of Ruth, the book begins with a famine. The sin of Israel brings judgment, and that is the famine. What I guess is surprising or rather ironic is where the famine extends to. If you look at verse 2 there, it says, it mentions Bethlehem. 
So Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. Bethlehem was known for its prosperous agricultural industry, but at this point in the history of Israel, the pastures are barren. So the author is making one point very clear. The situation is bad in Israel. There is no bread in the house of bread because of the sins of Israel. It doesn't get much worse than that. I think there's a, a, perhaps a temptation to, to read that and go, yes, that's terrible. But we must remember that a famine equals death. There is no supermarket that you can go to once your food runs out. There is no government bailout package. The food is gone from every house, from every community in town, from every city in the land. This is a time of death. The people are at death's door. So verse 1 continues. And there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his sons were Mahon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Okay. So because of the, fam- the famine in the land, this family leaves Israel and they go out into the land of Moab, which is an area uh, east of Israel. There they think they can grow grain and, and be sustained and live. And so verse 3 continues. Have a look there. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So again, the theme of death is emphasized. Death has followed the family, even to Moab. Now, after Elimelech dies, um, the the remaining verses there in in the first part of chapter 1 describe how his sons take Moabite wives, and their names are Ruth and Oprah. And these women become part of the family. And we read in verse 4 that the family then lives there in Moab for about 10 years. And at this point, the story is really precisely balanced. Elimelech, the father, has died. But overall, the family has expanded because there are two daughters-in-law. But ten years elapse and no children are born. And we're meant to understand here that Ruth and Oprah are barren. And then in the next breath, their husbands die. And the text says, Naomi was left without her sons and without her husband. There were four that set out for Moab. Naomi is the sole surviving member. She is plagued by death because of the sins of the people of Israel. But the narrator also hints to us that something greater might be afoot here. He notes her childlessness, and childlessness in the Old Testament is significant, right? It makes us think maybe Naomi's fate will be similar to that of other great women of the Old Testament who were childless, like Rachel and Sarah. Perhaps there's hope on the horizon. At the point of hopelessness, God intervenes. And the rest of the book of Ruth shows us how God reverses every one of Naomi's lacks. Peter Lightheart expresses it this way. He says, because of her sin, Israel has become a place of death, strife and slavery. But the story of Ruth shows us that God will restore all that Israel lacks. Naomi is a picture of Israel. 
And the Lord's mercy to Naomi is a promise of mercy to his people. By the end of the story, every one of her lacks for food, for sons, for an inheritance will be reversed. So let's continue the story and see how that unfolds. Have a look at verse 6. At this point, uh, Naomi decides to move back to Israel because she heard that God has visited his people. God has put an end to the famine and sent rain to Israel. So she and and her two daughters-in-law, they begin an exodus out of Moab and back towards Bethlehem. And along the way, she turns to her daughters-in-law and she exhorts them, go back to your own people. She recognizes and appreciates their sacrifice in remaining with her, even though they themselves are also widows. They're providing for her. But she reasons with them that nothing but pain and loneliness awaits them in Israel. They'll be outcasts. They're Moabite widows. They don't have many legal protections, no prospects for husbands in Naomi's immediate family. And so she exhorts them to return because at least then they have a chance of finding husbands in their family, in their family um, households. Oprah is eventually persuaded to return, but Ruth cannot be persuaded. Why not? I think it's two things that drive her. One is her loyalty and affection for Naomi. Both daughters-in-law clearly have a loyalty and affection for Naomi, however. The thing that separates Ruth is that she, above all else, wants to experience the covenant blessing of being God's people. She wants to remain attached to the people of God. Though she's a Gentile by birth and she knows she's going to be ostracized in Israel, her only shot at receiving this blessing is to stay with Naomi. And so she stays with the, uh, she stays the course. She moves away from Moab and towards Israel. Now, most of you know what happens in chapter 2, and I'm going to fly over that pretty quickly. So Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem. To feed the family, Ruth goes out into the fields during the harvest, and she follows, she follows along behind the harvesters who are cutting the grain. As grain falls to the ground, she gathers up those bits that weren't collected. And the field where she's doing this is the field owned by a man whose name is Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi. During the course of this, Boaz takes note of Ruth. He notes her kindness to her mother-in-law. And so he instructs his workers to purposefully drop more grain on the ground so that both Ruth and Naomi will be provided for in abundance. Now, this point is significant. We can blow straight over it, but it tells us a little bit about Boaz's character. We're introduced to him here and we're told something of his character. You see, the Mosaic law required Israelites, as they were harvesting, to leave behind what they dropped on the ground. But that was it. And the widows could come along and and be provided for by that. But Boaz goes above and beyond what was expected, what was required by the law. And he basically instructs his workers to leave whole bundles behind for her. He is a gracious and kind man. And so we read in verse 18 of chapter 2 that Ruth kind of takes up the grain and she goes into the city and, and comes and sees Naomi and reports back to her. And Naomi sees what she's gleaned. And there's a couple a phrase that's really significant that says, and Naomi was full. So Ruth's kind of weighed down by this much greater than expected supply of grain because of the mercy of Boaz. And that indicates that God has begun to reverse what they lacked. He has filled first the empty stomachs. But there is more to come. Our God is not one who is stingy in his mercy, is he? 
He is a God who overflows with loving kindness to his people. Which brings us to chapter 3. Okay, so chapter 2 is really a focus on food that ends the widow's famine. Chapter 3 focuses on the end of Ruth's widowhood. At the opening of the chapter, Naomi, the mother-in-law, devises a plan that will end Ruth's time as a widow. Verses 3 to 7 explain the plan. Let's read those together. So Naomi, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, says to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were in the field? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down... Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of his heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. There's lots of mystery in this scene, isn't there? Naomi's plan is, at its core, simple. She wants to invoke the Mosaic law and custom of the kinsman redeemer. Back in chapter 2, when Ruth came to Naomi in the city and she had that grain on her back and she, she told her where she got the grain, she explained it was in the field of Boaz, and Naomi hears that at that point and gets excited. And she's delighted and explains to Ruth why. She says... It's excellent news that you got this from Boaz's field because he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. So a kinsman redeemer in, in ancient Israel was a relative of a family. Okay? And custom and, and law both applied certain duties if the family entered hardship. So, for example, let's say the family had to sell their inheritance or land to buy food. The relative who was the kinsman redeemer had the right of way to purchase that land which would mean that at least it remained in the clan. He also had the right of way to raise up any offspring uh, if the husband of the family died and there was no son. The kinsman redeemer could marry the widow and produce offspring in place of the man who had died. But if he did so, then the offspring would inherit the family's land, not the kinsman redeemer. We'll see why that's important. So the picture is is kind of this. When Naomi and Elimelech originally left Bethlehem for Moab, they presumably sold their property in Israel because they were in distress. And so they had no inheritance back in Israel anymore. When Naomi comes back, she only has Ruth in tow. She has no long-term prospects for providing. Not for herself. She has no land as an inheritance and no son to inherit it. And so she plans to seek Boaz's help as a redeemer of both the land and the family, and in doing so, to secure Ruth's future as an Israelite. Now, there's a sense in reading the text that this is a long shot. It's a complicated plan in some ways, although it seems simple on the surface. And really, it has an impossibly small chance of success. Naomi is banking on the kindness 
that Boaz displayed to Ruth at the time of the harvest. And she's betting all her chips in on a move that will test whether that kindness will go even further. The plan she hatches takes place at night at the threshing floor, which is outside the city. It's a big flat area where several farmers could come and they throw their grain into the air. The wind takes away the light chaff. The heavy grain falls to the earth and there's big piles of grain eventually accumulated over time. And sometimes the farmers would spend the night there either to secure the grain or to get an early start on the morning. So there might be several of these located around the threshing floor. Many farmers gathered together. Naomi tells Ruth that she's to go down to that threshing floor and meet Boaz in the night. But Boaz must not know that she's coming and no one else can know either. But before she even goes, she's to prepare herself. She's to wash. She's to dress in her finest clothes. And what Naomi is essentially telling her to do is to prepare herself as a bride. She's then to go down to the threshing floor in the evening and watch where Boaz lies down but she mustn't go near him until it's dark. There will be other men, as I said, on the threshing floor, and some, like Boaz, may also sleep at the the base of the piles of grain they're threshing. But secrecy is key here to avoid any false impressions about what Ruth's intentions are as she approaches this older, single bachelor who's alone in the night. Gossip could ruin both their lives if things don't go well. And so darkness falls. And Boaz falls asleep. Ruth has observed where he went to bed and she approaches him. Under the cover of darkness, she draws near. She gently lifts the corner of the robe that covers his feet and she quietly lies down parallel to his feet. What's going on here? Why does she lift his robe? (laughs) Well, the simple gesture to expose the feet wouldn't have actually woken Boaz. But what it would have done is mean that as the night becomes colder and colder, eventually he would have woken up close to the middle of the night because he had cold feet. And so this simple gesture is quite ingenious because it guarantees seclusion or privacy for the couple during the events that are about to take place. No one will hear or see what comes next. But the secrecy also induces a kind of sexual innuendo or element of scandal here. Under the deep cover of darkness, the two are alone, a beautiful bride and an unmarried man. Boaz wakes. What will he do? The text speaks for itself. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Now at midnight, the man was startled because of his cold feet and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she whispered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Strange phrase. That phrase, spread your wings over your servant, is a marriage proposal. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. Now, in offering herself as the bride to this man, she shows what her true purpose is, and that is she wants to raise up offspring for Naomi. This is a really important scene because in it both Boaz and Ruth are shown to be righteous children of Yahweh. Ruth could have seduced Boaz in the depths of the night to secure her marriage. Instead, she proposes to him. Boaz could have succumbed to sexual temptation, but instead he praises the character of Ruth and agrees 
to marry her and sort things out in the morning. In verses 10 and 11, he says this, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So the situation is this. Ruth would have undoubtedly had her choice of suitors in Bethlehem. She has an excellent reputation. Boaz recognizes, however, that the true purpose of her proposal is not to go after a poor man for the sake of love or a rich man for the sake of greed. She comes after him for the sake of raising up an offspring for Naomi. He says, I know you have come for me because I am the Redeemer. She's not seeking marriage for passion or for greed, but so that she can raise up an heir. A worthy woman, indeed. And so Boaz agrees to marry her. And he also demonstrates his covenant faithfulness and righteousness by his willingness to act as a redeemer. We'll see why that's important in a minute. And so it would be kind of easy at this point to imagine the next verse is going something like, and so they woke in the morning, they went into the city, they organized a wedding, got married, had dozens of kids and lived happily ever after. Right? But that's not how the story ends, is it? What happens next? Just as everything seems to be finally working out for these two righteous individuals, Boaz interjects with a problem. In verse 12, he says this, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer who is nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will not redeem you, good. Oh, sorry, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now let us lie down until morning. It's hard at this point not just to want a quick resolution, isn't it? To want these two noble souls to join together in marriage. And instead of that, a massive hurdle is introduced. There is someone else who is a closer relative than Boaz. This man has the right to serve as redeemer. Is Boaz about to lose Ruth after all? Why do you think this complication is here? Why couldn't God have just let the story end with a happy union and a happily ever after? I think it's two reasons. The first is that it reveals something important about the character of Boaz. Despite the obvious desirability and availability of Ruth, who's this noble bride-to-be, he's prepared to give way to the relative who's rightly ahead of him. We see here Boaz presented as the model of integrity. He will sacrifice his own desires for the sake of walking blamelessly before God and men. But the other, I'd argue, more important reason why the the close relative problem comes is to show that God is in control. See, Naomi has worked cleverly to devise this plan to secure Ruth's future. Ruth has laid aside any personal um, goals to offer herself in marriage so that she can raise an heir for Naomi. Boaz is ready to accept the proposal, but if they are to marry, it won't be because of any human ingenuity or faithfulness. Instead, it will be because of the providence of God. Only he can overcome these kinds of problems as obstacles in their path, meaning it is he who gets the glory. And so the story draws to a dramatic close in chapter 4. 
Boaz sends Ruth home in the morning before the first light with another huge portion of grain, or, or literally in the text it's a seed. And in doing so, he meets and he abundantly supplies um, both Ruth and Naomi's needs to fill their stomachs. But this provision is more than that. It's a sign of his promise to them that he will not rest until he finds Ruth a husband who can raise up a seed to secure the inheritance. And so with that promise made, Boaz goes to the city gates in the morning and he assembles the city elders and the unnamed relative as well. Townspeople gather around as witnesses. And so Boaz speaks to this court and he presents the situation to them. He turns to the unnamed relative and he says, Naomi has returned from Moab and she has no land and she has no sons. She is in need of redemption. Someone needs to buy her land back. He turns to the unnamed relative and says, you have the right of way to make this purchase. And so the relative jumps on the offer. Now, while there would have no doubt been some high upfront costs for this relative, he would have had to sell some of the assets that formed part of his estate. He calculates that over the long term, the benefit of that additional land and the bigger inheritance for his own sons outweighs that cost. But Boaz continues. He says, wait, Ruth is part of the package. As the rightful daughter of Naomi, the Redeemer also has a duty to marry and raise up an heir through Ruth. An heir who will eventually re-inherit the land just purchased. And so for a pregnant instant, the issue hangs in the balance. Will the kinsman redeemer accept this new condition and claim both Ruth and the land? His reply breaks the suspense. He says, I cannot do it. In the end, he calculates that the cost is greater than the benefit. He knows that eventually he'll need to return any land to a son who would be born to Ruth. And so he waives his right as redeemer, renouncing it to Boaz. And so the romantic part of the story reaches its climax. Boaz can now keep his promise to provide Ruth a husband personally. Unlike the kinsman redeemer, he is prepared to count the cost and joyfully. His goal is is not monetary, it is salvific. He knows the outcome will almost certainly leave him worse off financially, but his goal is to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And he wants to bring Ruth into the fold of God's people by marrying her. Who does that sound like? Who counts the cost, not of silver or gold, but of leaving his glory in heaven and being nailed to a cross to bring outsiders into the people of God. Is this not a shadow of the great Redeemer to come? Doesn't it picture Jesus, brothers and sisters, who for the joy set before him endured the cross to redeem sinners like us? Amazing. The story of Ruth casts a long shadow forwards to the great Redeemer who will come and ransom his people from death at the cost of his own life. And so the story ends. Boaz bears the cost and marries Ruth. And Ruth bears a son whose name is Obed. Despite ten years of childless marriage in Moab, God now opens Ruth's womb to bless her through her faithful Redeemer. The story has moved from death to life. 
from famine to plenty, from childlessness to an heir. And then if you look down right at the very last book, uh, verse of the book, it ends with these words. And Obed, the son born to Ruth, became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. So, you remember back at the beginning of this message, I said we need to recover the art of understanding how to read the Old Testament as one big story. How does the story of Ruth fit? Well, it begins in the time of Judges when there was no king in Israel and it ends with the genealogy leading to David, the great king of Israel. It bridges the books of the Judges and of First and Second Samuel, which begin the time of the kings. Through a faithful Gentile Moabitess and a faithful Redeemer, God is raising up a king for his people. More importantly, however, the book of Ruth is a picture of the gospel. Naomi represents Israel. She's plagued by death because of sin, but God intervenes and sends a redeemer to give her life. That redeemer is righteous and good, and he bears the cost of her redemption joyfully. And the redeemer wins for himself a bride who represents all the nations, both Jew and Gentile. That is the message of the gospel. And it's here, right at the core of the Old Testament. So where does that leave us? (laughs) Well, hopefully it leaves us praising God. The Old Testament is full of these kinds of stories that reveal the patience and kindness of God. And true, there are some stories that reveal and focus on his justice and righteousness, but all of these are stories that point us towards Jesus and the cross, where the love and the justice of God meet. We need to learn to read the Old Testament so that we can see this. Now, on a more practical note, if you struggle to read the Old Testament like I do, can I encourage you to have a look at the following resources? I actually brought them. There's two books that are really excellent. One is called A House for My Name, and it's by Peter J. Lighthart, who I've quoted a couple of times. I read this over the summer. It's an excellent book. It does a flyover of the whole Old Testament. It's organised into chapters that are designed for reading during family worship. So it has helpful questions at the end or even throughout the chapters. Um, And it shows how all the stories of the Old Testament fit together to tell one big story. I can't recommend it highly enough. The other book is this. It's called Kingdom Through Covenant. For those of you who want to sink your teeth more into the theology of the Old Testament, this takes a look at the whole of the Bible through the perspective or the lens of the covenants, which are really the backbone of the story of Scripture. Lastly, there's four things that I can perhaps suggest to you to help understand the Old Testament as you read it. One is this. Look out for the weird details in the stories and think about why they might be mentioned, like the number of men in Abraham's army or the uncharacteristic mention of a sword in, of a spear sorry, in King Saul's hand when the rest of his army uses swords. Those details are there for a reason. Number two. Places are significant. Take note of them. Ask yourself, when was this place mentioned before? What happened here previously? Is there a connection? Three, think about why the different books are organised beside each other. What's the main theme of each one? How do those connect? And four, and most importantly, let us talk with each other about the Old Testament. We need to sharpen one another, both practically and theologically. So share your insights. Test them with others. 
Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament, like the New, is part of God's word. As Christians, we need to learn to uphold that phrase, tota scriptura. All of scripture is God-breathed and profitable to us. May we learn to depend upon God to teach it to us. May we apply ourselves in the study of it so that God might be praised as we see it revealing more of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have written this book for us, for our instruction and our benefit, so that we might know how to walk in your ways. Lord, please help us to understand the stories of the Old Testament and that they point forward to the new, to the centerpiece of history of Jesus on the cross at Calvary and of his, risen, of his rising from the grave. God, we thank you for the book of Ruth that is a shadow of the gospel. Help us to learn to read other books in this same way, God. And to see your marvellous hand of providence working in the lives of your people to draw many to yourself. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've been able to gather here this morning to hear your word, to return our praise and thanksgiving to you. Lord, please let us walk away from this place with our thoughts concentrated on you, rejoicing because of what you've done through us, uh, for us through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to learn to read the Old Testament. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.